podcast one production. Every day we're seeing more science fiction become fact, with wearables that read your brain, printers that create food, meat that's grown in labs, and flying cars, yep, flying cars, check out TerraFuture, already in production around the world. The sleek transportation future depicted in Blade Runner and Tron looks more and more like the reality of our next 15 years. But driverless cars and shared transportation services require some fairly radical rethinking of the way society operates and the way it divvies up its spoils. The top-down regulation and leadership required to impose such a uniform change seems fundamentally at odds with a democratic country. How do we ensure that geofencing by private transportation service providers doesn't cut off access for the poor? and restrict driverless cars to the wealthy parts of town. And are we really comfortable moving our family into a car recently occupied by strangers and their bits and pieces and personal odours? Do all sectors of society actually accept that driverless technology is the best thing for us? Or will the conspiracy theorists see this as big brother control? And are they right? Is our transportation future a sleek, clean sci-fi vision or a Mad Max redux with added robotics? In this episode of The Next Billion Cars, co-hosts Mark Pesci and I, along with special correspondent Drew Smith, share our visions for a driverless future. We spin some yarns and we speak with experts on what we might actually expect to happen. This theme of utopia dystopia is close to my heart as a designer, as a driver, and as an observer of people. I live in the USA, a place where the majority of the population believe in minimum welfare, a place where the yawning gap between rich and super poor grows daily. Here in Silicon Valley, we all talk about cars as a service, helping the elderly and disabled access transport. But there is no way on earth this country is going to give free transportation to the homeless, the disenfranchised and the undocumented. Our streets are full of illegal immigrants driving beta cars to work as the cleaners, cooks and gardeners of the nation. Where will they be when a transportation service requires ID? Meanwhile, those classic land of the free Americans who barely wear seatbelts, there is no way those guys are going to give up their trucks and hot rods. And I can't help but see an entire other landscape coexisting with driverless superhighways where those people, isolated by the money and documents required to use driverless technology, along with survivalists and other self-exile groups, will be forced to drive do-it-yourself vehicles on abandoned by-roads. Perhaps the two extremes might intersect on interstate highways, or perhaps they separate as the regulated and the renegade. Chris Gerdes was the Innovation Director at the US Department of Transport before becoming Director of the Centre of Automotive Research at Stanford University. He has a very interesting perspective on the ethics of driverless cars. I think it was really interesting when, um, during your talk that I was at, uh, people 
people were talking about this classic argument at the moment where um, the public is, okay, you're in a driverless car, you're the passenger, do you hit the crowd of pedestrians or do you hit the dog? Well, that's exactly right. So I I hear that question all the time, and we've been looking at ethical decision-making and ethical programming of automated vehicles for a number of years. And and now when I say that, people go, oh, I know just what you mean. Do I hit the old lady or do I hit the baby carriage? And it's like, that's not the question, really. The question is, how do we go through the environment uh, in a way that, that is considered to be sufficiently safe by society. Um, We really don't want to hit anybody. Um, If there is the need for a collision, then we have to ask some tough questions like, you know, really, whose responsibility is it? If somebody jumps out at the last minute, um, is that the car's fault? Is that the pedestrian's fault? How do we think about these things? How do we think about these issues and the responsibilities that we want to place on automated vehicles in society? There's a lot of really important questions uh, to ask here that I think are are not being asked because people are, are thinking about these extreme cases. I thought also on the ethics side of things, it was interesting when you were talking about how driverless car will ultimately, you know, uh, originally at least roll out as a serviced fleet and the ability of private companies to geofence those regions. And so where we can see where a lot of people are talking about, oh, the service industry is going to be so disrupted, we can now bring wheels to people who couldn't classically drive, who were impaired or who were too old. But this other concept that if that if it's unregulated and it's in the hands of private companies, it could be effectively geofenced so that it actually increases this gap between the haves and the have not in terms of transport. You know, I think that's a real risk that if you look at it, it is necessary uh, for companies to restrict the operating region or what we would call the operational design domain uh, to be able to simplify the problem in some ways. You can't solve every driving problem before you start putting these vehicles out on the road. You simply never get there. So, you know, companies are looking at geofencing local areas and looking at that as a way of technically solving the problem earlier starting to get more experience, starting to actually generate revenue. And all of that is very rational behavior, but it does run the risk of the fact that these areas where the service is available start to be the most profitable. And we have another instance of redlining low-income areas where the service could actually be a game changer uh, to people in lower-income areas who simply don't have the transit access to get to work. And so I think that's where... A government policy starts to be really interesting. Um, I'm a big believer in private industry for innovating and moving forward, um, but roads are a public good. And this is, I think, a place where public policy should be used to sort of set the guide rails uh, so that we move to a good future, that we get to this utopia versus the dystopia, and then let industry innovators uh, get us there. It's interesting because, I mean, a lot of the big traditional players in the auto industry are coming together and sort of glomming up and saying, we need to have common communications and we need to have commonality. And, you know, Toyota is going to share all these patents around 25,000 open patents around this automated driving and all these other technologies and things. So I feel like on the one hand, they're talking about sharing quite uncharacteristically, but on the other hand, they're still for profit companies and there must be this kind of push pull on that side of things. Yeah, that's very insightful. This, I think, is one of the central tensions that you see right now is that nobody really wants to go it alone, right? If they don't necessarily want to be the only one stepping out there saying, hey, look, this is what we think is safe. Uh, there's really some strength in numbers. There's a desire to share and have standard approaches or best practices. 
with regards to being safe. At the same time, you know, for many companies, they see automation as truly an existential threat or an opportunity. Uh, so they need to get it right and they need to be one of the eventual players in this space. And as a result, they are less uh, likely to sort of share anything that they consider to be their own secret sauce or intellectual property around this. So it's an interesting dance to watch right now as uh, companies try to come together and do things collectively for the purposes of safety, uh, while at the same time still withholding their own competitive advantages. What is the most exciting thing you think you're going to see in the next 15 years as a development in cars? What actually as a driver as a researcher, as someone at the pointy end, what excites you in the next 15 years? I think actually what excites me about the next 15 years are the things that I can't predict now. Um, I think this technology is going to come quickly when it comes. Uh, I think some of the predictions about how quickly it will come are maybe a little bit optimistic, but I, I think it's going to come. I think it's going to come very quickly when it does. And I think it's going to dramatically reshape everything about the way that we live. And I think some of those things are going to be tremendously exciting. And I suspect uh, were we to be talking again, you know, 15 years from now, I think the thing that we would be most excited about, most delighted about uh, would be something that just isn't even in our mind today. I guess the end began the day Uber went public tens of billions of dollars of their own money to burn and their investors paid off. They did what they always wanted to do. They destroyed public transport. Uber came in and subsidized rides in every major city all around the world, making them almost as cheap as a bus or a train and so much more comfortable. Open the app, tell it where you're going. Presto, a car appears. Why would anyone ride any other way? And that was how it happened. A hundred million individual decisions made every single hour, everywhere around the world. Individual acts at scale, adding up to real change. So public transport, it became a wasteland. And at the same time, because politicians can also be subsidized when you have money to burn. Ride-sharing companies lobbied governments around the world to withhold funding for public transportation. Why spend those tax dollars, they asked, when there's a perfectly good free market solution? And the hell of it is, they were right. Because everyone with enough money to afford one of those Ubers, they took one. And the automotive manufacturers, they supported this too because a car share at least means you're still making cars, still employing workers, still adding something to the economy. And the politicians understood that, so they acted. They cut and they slashed. The train carriages, they got older. The train lines, they broke down more often. And the buses, the buses just slowly fell apart. The global public transport infrastructure became more and more threadbare. And finally, the only people left riding public transport were the very poor and the very powerless, the folks 
who never get politicians responding to their needs. And meanwhile, more and more people drove around in cars, not in self-driving cars. Those seem to be receding ever further into the distance like beautiful, impossible mirages. But we're talking about cars with human drivers, drivers barely earning minimum wage, driving 15, 16 hours every day to earn just barely enough money to keep body and soul together, driving everyone who could afford it everywhere they needed to go, driving them on roads that now had double the number of cars, now that everyone had their own car and their own driver, on roads that couldn't handle that sort of traffic, roads that felt more like parking lots except in the dead of night. But no one cared. They sit in their Ubers, take meetings on their smartphones, and let the world go by. And as if that weren't bad enough, because electric vehicles are more expensive than petrol-powered in the short term, and because these drivers are working poor with no spare capital to invest in their assets, nearly 100% of these Uber drivers are still burning petrol. Still adding carbon to the atmosphere, still making things worse. So we're sitting in our Ubers with the air conditioned cranked because it's hot outside. It's too hot to walk. And it's crowded on these roads. And we don't seem to notice. I've been in field for a week now, and that's researcher speak for I've been living with the residents of the largest retirement community in the country. I'm here trying to get to grips with what might make folks' lives better. This place is vast. Once upon a time, it was just another suburb, home to trampolines, the screams of kids, and scores of SUVs. But now, kids gone, SUVs, day class A, and the state supporting people to stay at home longer, it's morphing into a new kind of community. It was two years ago that I came here for my first assignment, and I'm back to see how things have changed. You see, I work for the local studio of a company that designs and manufactures autonomous pods. When the population bubble burst, it left our cities skewing older, greyer, and a little or a lot less mobile. So communities like these are a big market for us. I used to work for one of the big manufacturers on the other side of the world. For all we cared about what was happening outside our studio there, we might as well have been on the dark side of the moon. But a little while after 2020, a wave broke. Over me, and over the entire automotive industry. And there was no going back to the way things were. I had the choice to do things differently. The big beasts of the industry? Well, they weren't so lucky. Because everybody who works in the studio lives locally, and we design locally, and we manufacture locally using 3D printing and milling, we can do the kind of hyper-customisation that was once just a twinkle in a car marketer's eye. Down south, where it's cooler, folk prefer our pods to be a little warmer, a little more private, and a little more subdued. 
Up in the tropical north, they make what we like to call the butterflies. Wing-like roofs to shade and capture the sun, open sides to let the breeze in, and a riot of colours everywhere. They do love their colour up north. Here in between, well, like always, it's a little of this and a little of that, and we like it just fine. The new metro opened up six months ago, and this area is starting to change yet again. And that's why I'm here, because when we deploy the pods, we don't just pump and dump like the old days. We work to get everything to sync up. We match the rhythm of the service to the rhythm of the community itself. We adjust the floor height of the interior to accommodate the walkways at the new metro station. And the rapid manufacturing facility across town means we'll be able to update the pods in a day or two. In my old life, we used to sell our cars as being perfect for attacking the urban jungle, for destroying the competition, for escaping the hellscape that was slowly enveloping us. Looking around me now, lush gardens, clean streets, happy chatter, why would you ever want to leave? Sometimes I wonder if I chose the right side. Of course, I appreciate smoother traffic flow, cleaner air and the convenience of on-demand service cars freeing up my commute time to squeeze more work time as I hum down the freeway an hour and a half to Mountain View. I bought that argument that society was better off with a driverless system of interwoven vehicles and I handed over my driver's licence, albeit with more than an ounce of regret, when the government announced the 2030 licence buyback to reduce drivers on the road. I figured having a private office on wheels with Wi-Fi and a massage seat would make me less achy and way more productive during my work week. I was sold on those incredible safety statistics and the promise from every service company that even the poor and disenfranchised would have access to reliable, safe transport. Everything was for the greater good, they said. And the socialist in me was so encouraged at this massive policy turnaround that I bought in 110%. But sometimes I urge my service car to hug the side of the superhighway so I can look down into the aftermarket suburbs and junkyards below and I get fierce FOMO. Yep, massive fear of missing out. Even though I know their accident rates are sky high, their vehicles are haphazard and their infrastructure is shaky and unpredictable, down there are the people who buck the system who refused to stop driving gas-guzzling trucks and supercars because they wanted to hold on to the freedom of driving. Thing is, it didn't seem like freedom when I was sitting in peak hour gridlock, but now I see what they saw then. Trusting the structure of society to a bunch of private tech companies was a pipe dream. Scheduled cars don't make random stops, which means we now swoosh past vast tracts of vacant shop fronts and miles of empty car parks, The only place you could actually browse through a store and handle the products will be in an aftermarket centre, if you could access it. But of course, driverless cars are geofenced out of those areas. Wouldn't want to get too close to the fun zone. And seriously, from here, it looks more and more like a fun zone. Some of the 3D printed accessories and mods are mind-blowing. The lift kits and extreme rock-hopping tyres must make every journey an adventure. Those cars can hop small fences, traverse road barriers, the driver on constant alert. The whole setup is about giving the middle finger to traffic control. 
And as for the rideables, we've all seen the fashion shoots on those crazy robo-tigers and honestly, if I was just heading out for a couple of blocks, who wouldn't want to ride a rock-climbing mechanical animal? This is human ingenuity at its most creative. It's Burning Man madness made accessible for every day. The only driverless vehicles actually allowed down there are the hospital carts that collect donor organs from unlucky human drivers and living people who want to make quick cash selling their non-essential parts. And as I look down from the sealed windows of my office capsule, I know I've made the rational, intelligent, socially acceptable choice. But life is supposed to be about the journey, not the destination. The journey down there has creativity and unpredictability and the kind of chaos which spawns opportunity. I am not convinced that convenience is worth a predictable life. My name's Drew and I'm a murderer. I mean, not a real murderer. I get squeamish at the sight of blood. But when I had an inkling that something was wrong, I hunkered down. Sure, I put my hand up, stood up, sent letters, raged. But the industry was already starting to crumble around me and, well, I needed the money. I kept working. I needed to believe that everything that I'd worked towards was still okay. That we weren't destroying the environment. That we weren't creating an uber-class of uber-hailing uber-mensch that we weren't making decisions that might one day just see someone wind up dead. Those someones number in the hundreds of thousands now. I work thousands of kilometres away from where we build our pods and thousands away from where we sell them to the TNCs. That's the transport network companies. The city where I live and work outlawed them years ago. It turns out that stratifying the liberty of movement is a really bad way. To build social cohesion. I work in a design studio built to demonstrate the global might of our once great company. Its hunkered, hidden structure now seems more like a memorial or a mausoleum. Floor after humming floor rises above me as I swipe in, a space birthed from the mind of an introspective, creative visionary. But we can't see out and no one can see in. It shields us perfectly from the outside world and outside ideas. All the better to give a pristine birth. A birth free from the messiness of the real world. A birth worthy of art. After all, car design is an art, we're told. And art and the artist must be protected. The only concession to context is the open sky above the courtyards where we review the models of the next pod revision. The sky's glowing orange today. It's dust, I'm hoping. I never was much of an artist. I sucked at drawing and I liked talking to people too much. I liked understanding what sucked about our world and working with folk to try and make it better. Not prettier, not more luxurious or faster. Just better. Less polluting, more inclusive, more sustainable, safer. There was a time around 2018 where it felt like this could be our future, that the automotive industry could change. Cities started closing the gates to cars, but in their wake came e-scooters and e-bikes and a myriad of other things. 
A few years later, a global Green New Deal laid the foundations for a wave of automotive innovation. But we didn't catch it. In a marriage of convenience, or was it desperation, we tied ourselves to the mast of the TNCs. Although we tried, we just weren't cut out for running our own mobility as a service brands. So we started designing luxury pods for the others. Elon and the rest of the industry missed the milestones for L5 autonomy and even L4 is proving more reality distortion field than reality. And so it falls to our team to try and accommodate the drivers that must remain. We try and make the incomprehensible and unknowable decisions of an autonomous system understandable and reversible in case of emergencies. But we don't even understand the systems ourselves. We didn't design them. No matter, apparently. It turns out that the Ubermenches like having drivers, no matter how diminished their role. Reminds them of the old ways. Driver up front, Ubers in the back. And it turns out the company likes them too. Nothing like blaming driver error when an Uber hits the wall. My name's Drew. I'm a murderer. And I'm out. I'm walking. I like to walk, so this is a good thing. I'm walking from home into the city. It's a good walk. Not too far. Just far enough. It gets me out into the world, into the beautiful weather on a beautiful day. On the streets, there are plenty of other people. Many of them are walking. A few are jogging. Bless. Some others, well, it's a bit of a mix. There's one whizzing by in a cute little scooter, probably electric assist. There's another on a skateboard and still another on one of those weird unicycle Segway hybrids, all platform and balance, powering uphill. It's made the footpaths a bit of a muddle and the roads a bit more chaotic, what with pedestrians and vehicles, both human and electric powered, all battling for position and pavement. It's friendly enough, except in the middle of the city where it's too dense to do anything much but walk. And if there's the need to travel far or quickly, then there's always the metro. Down the escalator, onto the platform, and a self-driving train pulls into the station every three minutes, day or night, 24 hours a day. Those stations are spaced exactly three kilometers apart, spaced with a precision like Roman roads, radiating out from the center, arcing around the center in ring after ring after ring. And it wasn't cheap. Not all of that tunneling, not all of those rights of way. It took decades. But when it was finally done, well, no one really needed a car anymore, at least not on a daily basis. Even when you go get groceries, they're delivered. We've never really had to haul anything home that's too big to walk or take on the train. So we walk, or we scoot, or we bike, or we jog, but we don't really drive. Oh, we do. I don't mean to say we never drive. There are places and times when it just makes sense. And you reach for the app, and a car appears to take you wherever you need to go. But most people, most of the time, they're happy to walk. And no, when it rains, no one wants to walk. 
And the app figures that out too, and it sends along a bus to carry a whole host of people where they're going. And the streets, they're not empty, but there's more room for bicycles and scooters, and it's all a lot safer. And that didn't even take driverless cars. It just took less cars. And those cars, well, we're making about a tenth of the cars we used to. Some of them are luxury vehicles, land yachts for the one percenters, but even those you don't see very often. Most of them are purpose-built to deliver packages or groceries or whatever else people can't haul on their own. And some, some are assistive vehicles meant to give legs for those who can't use theirs. But all of that comes to just a fraction of what we needed before. The companies that built themselves on incredible scale, VW and Toyota and GM and Ford and Geely, they just couldn't adapt to a world where we didn't need all the cars. The smaller makers like Tesla and Byton and Rimatch, they got on just fine. Built fewer cars at higher prices, cars powered by electricity, cars that will last for decades. So we're no longer talking about the next billion cars, just the next hundred million. And that's sustainable. We can live in that world and stretch our legs and go for a walk under the clear blue skies. So, Drew and Sal, here we are. And I have to own that that heaven version of the future for me really does mean mostly a car-free future. And I know that's not really the world that either of you want, but I reckon I'm not actually alone here. And certainly, Drew, after that interview that you did with Robin Chase, I know that I'm not alone. A lot of people feel this way. We feel like we're being buried in cars. And, and heaven for us means being released from that. But, but what do the two of you think? Mark, I've got to say I'm with you. Uh, actually producing this show over the last few months has been a really eye-opening experience for me. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a new city at the moment and I'm walking around and I'm looking at the way the beautiful waterfront has kind of been disfigured by all of the in- infrastructure that we've built to, to, to allow cars to move around cities. And I'm looking at the way the pedestrians are having to, to get out of the way. They're having to scurry and bikes are being held up so cars can get through. And I'm starting to think, actually, you know what? This isn't the future that I want either. Yeah, it's a funny thing. You know, when I used to judge Car of the Year, I used to say to the other journos, yeah, I don't love cars. I love about one-tenth of the cars I see. And most of the cars I see are a complete waste of materials and resources. And I stand by that. I still love a good car, but there is so much too much on the road that I'm cool with a lot of it getting eliminated. And I do still think that there's a place for us to have a fantastic road trip and a terrific drive. But this is very city-centric. And I think all of us agree that cities are not a place for cars. And this is the thing, you know, it was really just in about 2015 that half of humanity started living in cities. We come from a country where 80% of the population is urban. And so we do have that city point of view. And we still have to realize there's a lot of people who live in places where, in fact, cars are absolutely necessary to sustain a sort of relatively advanced quality of life or something like a car. And... Does that mean that the vision for heaven in those areas in the future are simply cars that are cheap and sustainable? 
perhaps it's, oh, I don't know whether they have to be cheap. They have to be good. And sustainable is not always cheap because if they're going to last the distance, you know, up front, maybe they're not. But I will say on your on your view of heaven, Mark, is um, there is a lot of congestion happening from the scooter and personal mobility device market. And I believe in about 10 years' time, people will be saying about those contraptions, what they're now saying about cars is why do we have so many of these little things buzzing around? Look, I was just in Christchurch and the scooters are everywhere and it's it's sort of vaguely annoying and I can see exactly what you're saying around this. Some of that's that they're so new that we haven't got any of the rules of the road around them yet. But you can see that if this goes unchecked, if we don't start to develop those rules, then they will become more of a problem than they are a benefit. Well, and I think there's there's a really interesting lesson for us in what happened with the launch of, of the transport network companies. So the companies like Uber and Lyft, uh, they appeared on the streets of San Francisco uh, and they essentially ran unregulated for as long as possible in as many cities as possible. And we saw some data released uh, just last week that showed that now in San Francisco, the vast majority of congestion on the streets is actually made up by uh, ride-hailing vehicles. And the cities were very much on the back foot with the launch of ride-hailing services. What we're seeing with the launch of micromobility is that uh, both city authorities and the companies launching these scooters and these e-bikes are much more aware of the need to build positive relationships from day one. So we're already seeing data sharing agreements in place between the micromobility providers and the city authorities to work out what are the most popular routes. So the cities can start thinking about where they need to invest in protected bike and scooter lanes. We're also seeing those micromobility companies recognizing that they have a responsibility to create a positive amenity for the citizens of a city and paying for parking areas or making contributions to the creation of those protected bike lanes. So I think we're already starting from a better place in order to create a more structured, safer uh, and enjoyable future than we were when Uber and Lyft arrived on the scene. But it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because all of those micro mobility devices are back to single person propulsion. And so we have these visions where we have um, spectacular public transport that allows us to get rid of a whole lot of stuff. But actually the fact right now is that more and more people are jumping on little micro-mobility things or puttering around and it's almost the opposite of that utopia of public transport is everybody's singular and on their own vehicle. Yeah, but it's singular and on their own vehicle that weighs what, like 20, 30 kilos versus singular and in their own vehicle which is about five metres long and weighs two tonnes and is chewing a whole bunch of juice in order to move you around a city. Yeah, but has the capacity to carry five. All right, but let's now come to something that everyone talked about, all of us talked about in different ways during our segments here, which is this, the, the, you know, the, the gap between the rich and poor becoming something that is amplified in this transition, right? That we actually are now starting to see the fact that the poor people are either going to be driving us around or they're going to be in the beaters because that's really all they can get. They won't be able to get a self-driving car because self-driving cars, at least for as long as we can see, are going to be significantly more expensive because they just require a lot of power, computing power. And they won't have a 
electric vehicles because the entry cost of getting into an electric vehicle is also significantly higher than a petrol vehicle, even though the running cost may be more expensive over a period of time. So how do we have a world that is heaven, not just for the rich? Now, the rich will always get heaven. How do we get a world that is somewhat heavenly for people who don't have the same level of resource? Well, it's interesting because when I spoke to Chris Gerdes, um, you know, he had a lot to say about the concept that beta cars and a lot of the stuff that's been maintained on the road by people with less money has a lot of expense around the maintenance and the running of those things. And that if we have a widespread enough system, then it, those people will be able to access access this concept of driverless cars or vehicles as a service. He's like, if that thing really gets traction, if governments make sure that there isn't geofencing that restricts it to areas that have more money, then it should get the, the economies of scale that allow everyone to participate. But let me, let me put on my evil hat and just say that I'm an Uber and I can gradually just, I can modify my algorithm a little bit just to make sure that it's just that much harder. It takes just that more few minutes to get a vehicle when I'm in a disenfranchised area, right? That's like, there's so many ways that you have to keep an eye on those things. So I think, you know, one of the one of the things that we're seeing in cities where uh, micromobility is launched, and and I want us to kind of get away from the idea that micromobility is just a kick scooter, right? That's just kind of the first thing that we're starting to see. We're now starting to see e-bikes roll out, and I'm fairly certain that over the next few years we're going to see an explosion of different types of vehicles. You know, things that are covered, things that will carry two people, things that might even carry three people, but still fit this definition of micromobility and can be shared within communities. One of the things that they're really, really good for is unbundling those journeys that that exist underneath five miles, so underneath about eight or nine kilometers. And there are vast chasms in our cities uh, that are underserved by existing public transportation infrastructure. And what you can do with these smaller devices in pull, is pull them in those areas. Let's call them, let's call them transportation deserts, right? We can pull devices in those areas that then allow people who are currently underserved by public transportation to then access those public transportation networks. So they can act as a filler to help feed people in, in a way that you probably don't want to be doing with personal cars or or autonomous vehicles. And we actually do see in some of the Greenfields uh, housing developments that are being designed in Australia now, you actually do see the folks who are doing that building in a transport option that keeps the cars off of the suburban streets to the degree that that's possible, but still gives people some sort of motorized solution. And it can look like a golf cart. It doesn't have to be much more sophisticated than that, but it can be something that really keeps it appropriate. Yeah. I'd like to pull a reality check, though, on the number of people who chain up those things so that they're for personal use. Have you seen this? Where you get a share bike or you get a share scooter and someone's whipped a chain around it and you just go, oh, good on you. That concept worked. You know, so I think we're always going to have this little this little trip. And I'm not suggesting that's the people with no money. I'm just suggesting that's a certain part of society that's always going to do it. And we saw just last week or the week before, uh, I think it was Bird, in San Francisco now saying, okay, well, uh, maybe you want to know that you've got access to one of these things all the time. So we're actually going to provide one of these things to you on a subscription service. Uh, We're going to provide you with a Bluetooth lock so that you can lock it up so that it does become yours, but you still don't have the capital outlay of spending, you know, 12, 1500 bucks on one of these things. So I think it's such early days in this space that I think we're going to see a lot of development even over the next 18 months. That's, that's quite exciting. 
Hmm. Drew, speaking of visions, is one vision of our heaven being able to design our own cars? Is that even possible? How is automobile manufacturing changing over the next billion cars? Well, Sal, it's funny you should ask. Coming up in the next episode, we're going to be looking at the future of manufacturing for the next billion cars. I'm going to be spending some time talking with Jay Rogers, who is looking at how we might be able to manufacture cars locally and in a highly customised way. Mark's going to be talking to Elizabeth Barron, who's spent the last 20 years exploring the technologies that might actually make it possible for consumers to design their own cars. And Sal, I have a feeling that you're going to have a great story to tell us too. That's on the next episode of The Next Billion Cars. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Mingus and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci and Drew Smith and Sally Dominguez thanking you for listening.